0: Nehemiah is the story of God keeping His promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through His people for the flourishing both spiritually, through ordering their lives around His Word, and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city.
1: Kids ages three through uh, pre cake and head down to Holy Cross Kids worship. The rest of you, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter four. Uh, really big passage this week. So don't get freaked out. We're going to go quick, but it's like the whole chapter. Some of you are like, uh, I'm not getting out till tomorrow. Trust me. All right. So this fall, we're taking 11 weeks and we're in week five. To look at what it means to renew a city. But to say this assumes a few things. It assumes, first and foremost, that our communities are in need of renewal, right? That is one of the great things about Christianity. It doesn't pretend that this isn't the case. Christianity admits very clearly that we and the world are broken, that we're desperately broken, beyond our ability to fix, in fact. What do you think about that? Do you believe that you are beyond your ability to fix? That's a valid question, right? But that's that's what uh, the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that a few rules well kept aren't going to do it. That we need a rescue, and not just once, not just like a one-time rescue, but continually are we in need of rescue, but that said, God is in the business of doing just that. And so last week, we looked at how Nehemiah was used of God to affect this renewal, um, how, how uh, we, we, looked, uh, we looked at multiple ways in which that happens. Uh, this week, we look at a reality we don't want to think about, and that's opposition. Because You see, seeking renewal, whether that's renewal in ourselves or renewal in our city, is going to bring opposition. But like many of the songs we've sung this morning tell us, God... Fights for us. So that said, I'm going to pray this morning. Uh, Our passage is way too long for me to read the entire thing. We'll be reading through it as we go. But would would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. And we have come into this place bringing with us a bunch of different things. The one thing we've all brought with us is our brokenness. Our need of grace. Our need of the gospel. And so we ask that you would meet us in that need, as you have promised to, that you, are, you remain a covenant-keeping God, and so we pray that you would keep your covenant, keep your promises this morning, to rescue a people for yourself. You open our hearts to receive you, our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, and let Christ and his cross come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life, so speak. Your servants, listen. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, maybe you've heard this name, but George Bailey. George Bailey just wanted to help people. Actually, that's not entirely the case. George Bailey wanted to travel the world. But because of a collection of circumstances, he ended up helping his community get through the stock market crash of 29. So he ran a building and loan. He wanted to help people own and stay in their homes. It's all about the community and and helping this guy over here stay in his house that he couldn't necessarily afford it, and this person over here. And and all of that would have been a lot easier if it weren't for Mr. Potter. Remember Mr. Potter? Bald, beady old eyes, a little blanket over his wheelchair. Uh, Of course, I'm speaking of It's a Wonderful Life, but frankly, I could be speaking of anything, really. Because opposition to change, whether it's uh, community-wide or whether it's uh, internal. is simply a given. It's simply a given. It's, it's what happens. What forms does it come in? From, from whence does it come? And how are we to respond to it? That's, that's what we're looking at in the text of Nehemiah to help us with this morning. And so if you have an outline in your bulletin, we're going to look at this in, um, in three ways this morning. We're going to look at types of opposition. We're going to look at the roots of opposition. And then we're going to look at our responses to it. Okay, Types of it, the roots of it, and then our responses to it. If that's helpful for you, keep that in front of you. If not, just listen close. Okay. Let's start with types of opposition. Now, but before I do that, let me once again catch, catch us up, because we're in the middle of a narrative. This is, this is a story. This isn't like a letter in which we can kind of hop into the middle of it and be kind of okay. We need context, but it's, if, you're, if, if this is your first time with us, you're going to be jumping into the middle of a story. So let me catch us up. Now, some of you will notice, if you were here last week, that we went from like the end of chapter 2 into chapter 4, and you're like, Rick, what, what just happened? How did we jump that? Well, here's why. Nehemiah has come to, to Jerusalem to see it rebuilt. We've talked about the fact, if you've been here, that the walls of the city were broken down because the walls of the people in their hearts were broken down. The, 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 the city was a mess because the people were a mess. The urban landscape or the urban, the urban desert of Jerusalem kind of reflected a spiritual desert in the hearts of the people. We saw that Nehemiah responded to this news by asking God to be gracious, to remember his promise to deal with our sin. And then he asked the king of Persia, who he served, for assistance. And he got that assistance, and so he comes to the city. And last week we saw that he came following a certain pattern. You remember that? A lot of eyes involved if you were here, that, that he followed a pattern of, of immersion in the community, investigation of what the needs really were, to see them with. His own eyes of identification, of claiming that this isn't their problem, this is our problem. And then an invitation, an invitation to join in the work that God is doing to see this happen. And we also saw that this pattern, if you remember, isn't just good sociologically, though it is. I mean, sociologists will tell you that what we see in Nehemiah is actually a reflection of how communities change, interestingly enough. But, but this, this isn't just good sociologically, but it is, in fact, how God came to deal with our sin in Jesus, Right? That God didn't commute from heaven to rescue us. He came and immersed himself in our life. He, God the Son took on flesh, became human to, to live with us. And then he, he uh, identified with us. He lived our life. He was made in every way like us, but without sin. That he identified with us. That on the cross, that he, he actually bore our sin in himself. And then the invitation, in, inviting us by the power of the Spirit into the life of God. That's what we saw last week. Now, chapter 3 basically picks up the story from when, from when the people say, yes, let's go build, and then it tells you a list of all of these people and where they built. I am not that good a preacher, okay, to be able to go through that list and where they built and give you uh, something. I'm just, there are, I'm sure there are some, but not me. So the construction has been going on, and now we have opposition rising up, and that opposition first comes in the form of derision. Look down at verses 1 to 5, Okay? Says this, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. He said, Yes, what are they building? If the fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall." So we have these two guys right here, right? These two dudes. We t- we've spoken about them before. Sanballat and Tobiah. Okay. Sanballat is the regional governor of Samaria. Samaria is in the north. It's north of, of Israel, and and he is the regional, the Persian regional governor of Samaria. He's somebody in power. He's somebody who has political influence. Tobiah um, is is probably an official of some sort with the Persians. He probably works with Sanballat. They're 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 guys who who are vested. And all that we really know at this point about these dudes is that they're not happy, right? Here's a city, a big city at the time, being rebuilt. When they were probably instrumental in stopping it the last time it was being rebuilt. You Remember we talked about that, that that the Jews actually had started to rebuild these walls until somebody spread the word to the king that, hey, these guys are going to rebel against you, and the king put an end to it. Probably through these very people. And so the first way that they respond is through mocking and derision. You see that he calls them feeble. Sanballat does. He asks if they can possibly do this themselves. He asks if they will they will sacrifice, which probably means scholars will tell you that what that probably means is what are they going to do? Pray the wall up, and then and then he asks if they can actually revive stones out of the trash, right? This place was utterly destroyed. And then Tobiah gets in on it, verse 3, and basically says that if, like, look, they're so good at building a wall, if a fox climbs up on it, it'll break it down. I don't know if you've actually been around a fox, but they're not exactly big, right? They're, they're felines, believe it or not. They're, they're, they're cats uh, They're in the feline family. There's a small animal, jumps up there, it's going to break it down, okay? And so what these guys are doing is they're calling into question both the project itself and the ability of the Jews to do it. Now, here's the thing about this verbal opposition. It's not really far off. I mean, think about it. The Jews in Jerusalem aren't exactly a mighty force. There's barely anyone living there. Why would you? It's a city without walls. It's dangerous. It's, it's economically not viable. It's, it's, uh, it's not safe. It, there's no governance. Like, it's, why would you live there? There's not that many people there in the first place. This group of people are, they they are rather feeble. They've always been. Can they do it themselves? No. Will they pray up the wall? Kind of the point. Yeah. The derision isn't difficult to take because it's full of lies. The derision is actually difficult to take because it's partly true. Now notice how Nehemiah deals with this in verse 5. Now, what, what he doesn't do is he doesn't go complaining to the king about bad treatment he's getting from others. In other words, like, he doesn't receive opposition and write his congressman. You know, like, I can't believe what these people are doing. They hate Christians. Uh, instead, he prays to God. Okay? Look at that, though, because most of us would struggle in praying this. Look at, look at how he does this. Hero, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, these verses form what uh, biblical scholars call an imprecation. Okay, An imprecation, an imprecatory prayer. Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, Nehemiah is basically asking the Lord to take up their cause, to, to take up the cause of the Jews, to defend them. And in fact, he's asking him to do it because he actually needs to understand it's an affront to the Lord Himself, not just to these Jews. Because this work of renewal, this part of kingdom expansion that's going on in Jerusalem, is not the plan and the work of a group of Israelites in in a literally God-forsaken city. This work of renewal, this part of kingdom expansion... Bringing all things under God's just and loving rule is his work. And so their mocking of it isn't primarily against those working. Their mocking of it is primarily against the God who sent them. Now, it is likely that this isn't some private conversation that Ballot had, right? That he's like saying this in, in whatever he held court. That he's saying this in front of the army, that he's saying this in front of officials, that more than likely this is a part of a propaganda co- campaign, right? They're going to send this out to go uh, dishearten the Jews. Uh, which would make sense, right? How would Nehemiah have heard of it in the first place? But it doesn't seem to work, though. Okay, In, in verse 6, Nehemiah says that they had, they had already finished half the wall. So whatever the threats, whatever the, the derision did, it didn't stop them. In fact, he says, we had f- completed the wall to half its height. In other words, they've done a ton of work. And so the, the words move on towards threats. Look down at, first at verses 7 to 11. Okay? Verses 7 to 11, you have uh, basically a, a group of people being named together. Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites. All right, and so basically what you have is a regional coalition coming together to say, hey, hey, this is going to destabilize things if they get their act together and get this wall built. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come together to threaten force against the Jews in Jerusalem. But that's a little problematic. Okay? Again, we have to remember the story that's going on here. Because it's not like Nehemiah showed up with a bunch of trees that he had cut down in some random forest and showed up just to do the work himself. He had gotten the permission and the funding from the king, Artaxerxes. The Persian king told Nehemiah he could do this. So, so basically what happens is if, if the regional powers begin fighting against Nehemiah, the king was going to get involved. And they don't want that. So, knowing that they can't really do anything that way, they plan some black ops stuff. All right? That's what's going on there in, uh, at, at the end of that passage. Um, they're going to sneak in they're going to sneak in, kill some folks, and get out. They have plausible deniability. It looks like roving bands of marauders because, quite frankly, that would have been common. You have walls that are only half built. Okay? But the word of this has its effect. Look down at verses 10 to 12. In Judah, it was said, okay, in other words, amongst Jews, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall." So the people are losing heart. They say that they can't really finish it. And then the Jews outside of the city, there at the end of, ver, or in verse 12, it says that at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. In other words, they're saying, you've got to get out of Dodge. This is not going to work. Do you understand what's coming? Here's how Nehemiah combats this. Look down at verses 14 and 23. Yeah, there are three things in this section I want to point out. First thing he does is he reminds the workers Work this really is. It's not really them. He says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now, that word awesome isn't like the 90s version of the word, right? 90s America, Bill and Ted, excellent, awesome, we had all that. That's not what that means. It means awe inspiring, right? Um, There's a a hymn that says in its original form, we've changed the language a little bit, How great and awful is the place and by awful and it's talking about where the lord dwells and it means awful not as in terrible but in full of awe and that's what this is talking about he is great and full of awe and then in verse 20 Nehemiah says our god will fight for us when he says remember the lord what he means is remember we're not alone this isn't this isn't just us who are involved in this it's his fight that God began this by grace, and He isn't thwarted because we are smaller, weaker, or have substandard materials. we always have. We've always been smaller. we've always been weaker. We've never been good enough. That's been the whole point. God is awesome. So the first thing he does is he reminds the people of the gospel. The second thing he does is to slow down the work and put people into shifts to actually defend the other workers. That's what he's talking about in verse 14 when he says, Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Okay? People are at, are at risk. They're in danger. And so love of neighbor compels them to say, Okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to slow down the work. Things aren't going to happen as fast. Some of our people are just going to have to stand in the gap. They're going to stand in those breaches where the wall isn't quite ready yet. And they're going to stand there and, and hold that line. Here's a community under siege. And so the community protects one another. Thirdly, I want to point out, everyone was involved. Did you notice in, in this passage, maybe you haven't quite read the whole thing yet. Let me, let me take you to a place that is helpful Starting in verse 19, and he said, I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. You know who was standing right next to the dude with the trumpet? Nehemiah. Everyone is involved. Nehemiah literally puts himself next to the dude with the trumpet and then he tells them, look, the guy with the trumpet is going to be where the assaults are happening. Where the conflict is fiercest, that's where he's going to be. And where he's going to be, I'm going to be. I am in this with you. He is on the front lines. Talk about immersion, right? What we talked about last week. Talk about identification. Here's, here's the, who's, who's basically taking up a post of a governor. He's, he's, he's a political power, and he's saying, I'm going to be right there. We're in this together. Last thing about this before we move on. Opposition rises up and Nehemiah isn't surprised. He prays. He encourages others by the fact that this is God's fight. But he also strategically works to counter the threats. Again, we've said this throughout this series. There is no dichotomy here between prayer and action. Right? There's no like, uh, we're, we're praying and so therefore we do nothing. There's prayer followed up by action assuming that the reason the action will be helpful that it will actually accomplish anything, is because we've prayed and God is going to work. They go together. Any hope for the action is based on the fact that God is going to work through it. Okay, so that's the types of opposition. Now I want to look at the roots of it. Because we have a rather polarized view of opposition to God's work, right? We tend to take, we, we tend to take either the Pollyanna-ish view that no one would possibly want to be opposed to work that's actually going to help people, right? No one would actually oppose that. Why, why would they do that? Like, everyone likes good things, right? Or the paranoid view that everyone is simply out for power and so power will always stifle change for that very reason. Uh, reality is far more complex than that, so let me try and navigate that complexity a little. The first route that opposition springs from is our uh, a kind of marriage to the status quo, what I mean is this. Opposition to change comes because we like things the way they are. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are like, Rick, no, I don't. That's the entire reason that we're talking about change. Is We don't like things the way they are. But notice something. I didn't say the idea of change. I think everyone likes the idea of change. Right? We elect people because of the idea of change. But actual change. That's something a little different. Because look, I'm sure there were Jews before Nehemiah in Jerusalem talking about rebuilding the walls. You can almost see the the old guys sitting around the coffee shop or wherever. They're sitting out by the walls going, we've got to rebuild these things. Somebody's got to come along and get these things up because we cannot live like this. Who's going to get the walls up? They've been talking about it. But you know, Sanballat and his his bros didn't get uppity about them talking about it. They got uppity because somebody showed up with the resources and authority to actually do it. That's what raised their ire. And, and it's the same internally. I'm talking about communities there, but it's the same internally, right? We like the idea of change. Uh, some of us personally are like, yeah, I really, really do need to, really need to start reading, reading the Bible more, praying daily, whatever. But, but actually doing it? Ah, I don't know if we like that. What I say of individuals is true of communities. And that's this. We will never change unless the pain of changing is, is less than the pain of staying the same. Let me turn that around. We won't change unless the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. Because change will always cost us something. This Sumerian governor did, had, did have a vested interest in seeing those walls remain broken, okay? We're going we're to see in the weeks to come that people in the city had a vested interest in seeing them broken. But for others, that kind of opposition to change can simply come because even though they are miserable, at least life is predictable, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? That's why many of us stay in our addictions, We know that this thing that we're doing, whether it's drink, substances, pornography, or just addicted to our anger and our rage at people, we know that's gonna destroy us. But at least we know how to do life with it. If we give it up, what do we do then? How do we how do we manage? It's so unpredictable. It's just unknown. Here's where this is seen in most churches. Let me push just a little bit harder. We say, we have, a, we have great words about how, yes, we, we want to reach, we want our church to reach those who don't know Jesus. Right? We say that, and then those folks begin to start coming in. They don't, they don't know the rules. They, they don't know how you're supposed to act. They, they don't know what's expected or how their, how their children are supposed to, wait a minute, what, what, what is everybody doing? Like, it's so, so rowdy or it's so messy We realize that being open to to that means the church is going to change. We we may have to give on some of our preferences. So they, they don't know how you're supposed to act in church. How are you supposed to act in church? By the way, you don't realize, uh, they, you know, they just they just wear their brokenness on their sleeve, whereas most of us keep it well hidden, vest pocket type thing, like in the back, like so that no one can see it, and we're afraid of the questions that our kids might ask in seeing them, so we quietly help them know in very subtle ways that they aren't welcome. So things can go back to normal. And we can just breathe easier. So first is upsetting the apple cart. The second reason opposition springs up is what Nehemiah alludes to. We oppose God. Now, some of you are, are thinking as I say that, you're like, Rick, I come on, God's my dude. Like, I, I don't oppose him. Listen, if you're human, and everybody is, the Bible says that all of us do. That all of us do. You see, that's part of the story. We're, we're made for God. In the beginning, we were made for God, made to depend on him, made, made that everything in our life was made to 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 kind of point towards him, and we were made to rely on him for everything, from From our life to our understanding of reality. In other words, we were meant to exist humbly looking to Him to define things for us. But because of sin, we're turned away from God. We seek to be independent of Him. We want our own way to determine our own right and wrong. See, you and I, we want to be God. At the end of the day, who cares about Him? The Apostle Paul, who ended up writing a lot of the New Testament, says that we are all enemies of God by nature. Think about that for a minute. Because I know that that's hard for many of us to grapple with, to grasp, because our, 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 we all struggle with different things. We all look different in our struggle. Because some of us oppose God by outwardly just kind of doing our own thing. Right? Say, I don't need you. I don't want you. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. We're open with it. and Blatant. Others of us do it by trying something a different way. We, we try, instead of being blatant about our opposition to God, we tr- just try and be good apart from Him. But the problem is we can't, and we know that, which inevitably means we pick and choose what we think should be important. You, you know, we're like, see God, I don't murder. I don't murder people. I mean, sure, I get angry, but, but you really shouldn't care about that. And I, I don't commit adultery either. I mean, sure, you know, I, I get porn every once in a while, but, but that doesn't hurt anyone. I, I'm really pretty good. Better than those people. Sure, that's maybe a little self-righteous, but, but why should that matter? See, it's, it's God's standard we don't like. God's plan, God's design, God being God. and Defining things. That is why, whether individual or community, that change is as much a spiritual endeavor as anything else. Because every person who lives in our community, Christian or not, has this bent inside of them that seeks to oppose God. We don't want His kingdom or His plan, and we don't want it on a heart level. And only God can change hearts, only God can reconcile enemies. That's the roots of opposition. Now let's talk a little bit about how we respond, shall we? First, let's look at the grace of dependence. Let me ask you a question. When opposition rises up, whether that's in, maybe, you're, maybe you, you volunteer somewhere and that, that rises up there, or maybe maybe in, in your workplace, you're trying to put in place, a, a, you're trying to do your work in such a way that honors the Lord, that seeks to serve the community you're in, and opposition just rises up. Or maybe it's just internally, like problems you can't seem to kick out. When that happens, where, where is it that you run first? Is it to your abilities? You just need to work a little harder? You need to try a little more? Is it is it your your resources? I have a big fat checkbook. Some of you are like, no, I don't. I know, but some of you do. I can fix anything. Is it your power? You know what? If I can just get into a better, if I can just get a a, a promotion and actually I can just marginalize these people over here and they won't oppose me anymore. Is it relationships? You know, like, if I can just get enough people on my team, get enough of the people that love me with me, then we'll be good. Listen, God made us for dependence. That is why Jesus came. He came to restore us to that. And I've said this before, but this is... This is why Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. And I know that's, like, scandalous in our society to to say such a thing. that 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 absolute's not okay. You've got to hold to their absolute. But but listen, if your problem is dependence, if sin is ultimately not so much about being bad as it is about being independent of God, and God provides the way through which we can return to dependence, then the only way to return is through that way, right? No amount of good is going to help you. See, it can't be about what you did or didn't do because then it's about you. It's about your work. It's about you. Jesus came to live perfectly, to die sacrificially and rise victoriously so that we could place our faith in Him instead of ourselves, in Him instead of our resources, in Him instead of our abilities or our power or our money. His perfect record instead of ours. His sin-bearing death instead of our feeble attempts to hide or make it up. We need to return to dependence on God. Jesus is God. Then faith in him is the only path to dependence. This is why the gospel is good news. because Your relationship with God isn't about you. It's not about you. It's not about what you have or haven't done. And so if you're here this morning and you're a train wreck. Or you're here this morning and you're a very good religious moral person. And I tell you, we are all in the same spot. Independent and needing to return to God through Jesus. But that grace extends beyond just getting to heaven. That dependence is what we were made for. Not just our way to kind of get in. It's what we were made for. And that is why Nehemiah turns to prayer. He turns to prayer to ask God to act. Because it was God's fight in the first place. God didn't need Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. What did Jesus say when he was on his way into Jerusalem and people were telling him, hey, can you stop these people from singing? He said, listen, if they stop, the rock's going to start singing. Like, what? He wasn't lying. He didn't need those singers. God can make his own. (laughs) He doesn't need us He partners with us out of wanting to invite us in to his mission, his kingdom, his relationship. Our God will fight for us. And so when we come down to it, the Jews were feeble and needy. Of course they were. We all are. But God is awesome. So when we hit opposition, I would challenge us to simply see it as an opportunity to return to the Lord and to seek him instead of our power our money, our cleverness. But that's theoretical, right? Let's get to brass tacks with prayer and perseverance. What are the two things that we see Nehemiah doing here? The first is prayer, okay? Very clearly, the first is prayer. Ultimately, we need to understand that what we are told in the New Testament, that whether we are talking about seeing people renewed through faith in Christ or our city renewed, it is a spiritual work, This is driven home to me often, okay? Because I can put in, this has happened to me before, I have have studied and I have pondered and I have picked precise words and I have come come into this time in the morning at times going, Lord, this is going to be the most awesome thing ever. And it's like, and there are times when I'm hanging on by my fingernails coming to, the, coming to get into here and I feel metaphorically like I'm doing this, like I can't get here and I've got nothing to say and someone will come and say, Rick,
0: that thing over there, that changed
1: my life and be like, awesome. I didn't even say that. Do you understand? Like that's happened before. Someone will say, when you said this, da, 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 and I, I go, I don't think I said that. And I went back and listened to the recording and I'm like, I didn't say that. I literally didn't say it. Like, God, this is a spiritual work. The fact that we see how God has worked in us, as needy as we are, is what propels us into prayer. When we see evil rise up, friends, it is good and right for us to pray that God would throw it down. Let me say that again. When we see evil rise up, it is good and right for us to pray that God would throw it down. If we don't believe that, you've got to chuck like, 75% of the Psalms. Sorry, that's not, I, nope, that's not okay anymore. My God's not like that. But yes, He is. But, when we do that, we need to be open to how God will do that. Because if you're a Christian in this room this morning, can I tell you something? God did throw down evil in you. And he did it by putting it on Christ on the cross. That's how God threw down evil in you and in me. As we see not just opposition, because opposition is a nice little idea, right? Not just opposition, but opponents. Because opponents are people, not ideas. We know this, right? I know that Facebook and Twitter and all these things can confuse us. Opponents are people with hearts that beat and souls that are in need, just like yours. When we see opponents rise up, our prayer needs to be for God to rescue them or remove them with the emphasis on the first one. This is ultimately what we pray for when we pray, Thy kingdom come. That is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God would remove evil by bringing His kingdom. Lastly, though, the other thing we see Nehemiah do is that he does what needs to be done to see this work go forward and the community protected. See, this last little bit of this passage is so important for that. He says, Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Now, <laughs> that is not some comment about Nehemiah's aversion to nakedness, nor is it like, it's like, well, I know, when you get a bunch of dudes together, they never do their laundry. Like, that's not what that's about, okay? Okay. It is a statement that these guys never rested. They never rested. They never changed their clothes for bed. They were constantly ready. Constantly prepared. They gave themselves. They put themselves in harm's way. In fact, they put themselves between those working and the opponents to make sure that the kingdom work would continue. So let me ask you two things as we come out of this time. Number one. Are you so passionate about seeing this community renewed that you will give yourself to prayer? Don't answer that too quickly. It seems like a little thing, but if you do that, you will find yourself struggling with the brokenness around you and in you like you have never done before. Because that means that God is calling you to wrestle with him over. That is also because Paul says that we don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against powers, principalities, and spiritual forces of wickedness. And I know that you don't believe in those, right? That's where your opponents are. Two, are you passionate enough about seeing God's kingdom impact this community that you continue to work to see what needs to be done for that to happen? Even in the midst of opposition. Even when you're scared, even when it costs you. You see, if your confidence is in the work and the workers, you won't. Because the work and the workers will always fail you. But if your confidence is in the gospel, and the God of the Gospel, if you know that He has given you everything, because He's given you everything and you didn't earn it, that means that you can't do anything to lose it, then you will be freed to risk everything for Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we live in a time in which opposition is theoretical and constant. We live in a society that is addicted to being uh, mad about something. We are addicted to outrage. Lord, I pray that as, as you call this church and this people in this room to be a people for our city, seeking its flourishing physically and spiritually and emotionally, as we go forth to do that and opposition rises up, you would let us not be surprised, but instead just see that as an opportunity to return to you. To to come back and, and confess that this is your work in the first place. None of us can save a soul. Not one of us can change a life, better yet a structure or a system of lives. But we do pray fervently you would do that kind of change in the city of Stanton and in our community? Would you put an end to brokenness? Would you throw down evil? Would you make beauty flourish in this place? We know that it won't happen perfectly until Christ returns, but Lord, we pray that for a down payment on that return, in power in our city, knowing that you care far more about it than we do. We ask all these things.